Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carvel and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is a member of the Armed Services Committee and House Oversight Committee's Deputy Whip of the Progressive Caucus, Congressman from the Silicon Valley, Ro Khanna. And remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsor, Chili Sleep. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. You can check out them in our show notes. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, the January 6th hearings continue. The details are, are really despicable. Trump was told you lost, but his deranged mind turned to second-rate advisors, some of them drunk to spin the big lie. You know, we've known for a long time, most anything Trump does is a scam. He had this big fundraising operation to stop the steal. He fleeced a lot of gullible supporters, and then he doled out a lot of really I mean, dubious uh, uh, recipients, 60 grand to Donnie Jr.'s girlfriend, a million dollars to Mark Meadows, who was his chief of staff. But, you know, the overarching point, which we've seen in just several of these hearings already, was, some, I think, some, summarized perfectly by our friend Bill Crystal. One, Trump lost. Two, he then lied. Three, he then led a criminal conspiracy to overturn the election. That's it. Well, uh, first of all, I think the committee has, has done a, a, a highly competent job. And clear to me what they're doing is putting the elements for a criminal case against Donald Trump. That, that's their intent here. And what you saw in the last hearing was to, to talk about willful blindness, where he can't say, I actually thought, or I had reason to believe I actually won the election. I think each hearing is building a building block for a potential prosecution federal prosecution of Donald Trump. And I wouldn't be surprised if one of the things that they don't focus on is mail fraud, where they were telling, to, raising money on the pretense that they were using this to fight the election returns when they were just lining their pockets. If you remember, that was the same thing that Steve Bannon was indicted for when Trump had to pardon him because he knew too much. So I, I think my advice is look at this and listen to the more experienced legal commentators, and you will see that they have one goal, I think, and that is to make a case so compelling and so legally compelling that the Department of Justice is left with no option but to pick this up. There are some very good legal commentators, James, but the best of all, sadly, is not with us, Walter Dellinger. We miss right. him always, but God, would oh, he be God. great. He'd be great on this stuff. Oh, boy. You, you know, some depicted this, this Trump world, as a contest between the forces 
of insanity. Uh, Rudy, uh, Linwood, uh, Clayton, Clayton Mitchell, Sidney Powell versus normalcy. Congress, Cong former Attorney General Bill Barr, campaign chief of staff Bill Stepien. Look a little bit more closely at the normal guys. Barr, who basically says Trump was delusional, says, well, I wouldn't support him in 2024 for the nomination, but I'd probably vote for him if he's the nominee. He'd vote for someone that he knows is dangerous to the country. James, that, that ain't normal. And Stepien continues to serve this disreputable figure. Uh, he is counseling Trump. He's making money uh, with, with Trump. He's helping him try to defeat Liz Cheney, who has, by the way, an almost perfect uh, conservative voting record. You know, the, the so-called normal guys aren't much better than the drunk brigade. No, but I guess compared to, to what? And I, I, the fact that Rudy was drunk on election night made election night no different than any other. I mean, he's been drunk on TV forever. Uh, and you're right, and, and Stephen was very skillfully maneuvered himself where he comes across as a good guy. And uh, he was part of, of a lot of different things. If I remember this idiotic bridge gate in New Jersey, I think he was kind of wrapped up in that too. He was fired for that, James, and he right. just barely escaped uh, an indictment. And I think, yes, and I think his, uh, a friend of his, like, went to the penitentiary. Or, right, right. Something, something like that. I, 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 right. But but I, I have to just say, I admire his kind of moxie, and he's now positioned himself as a hero in all of this, and he'll probably make a lot of money, but at, at least he didn't lie. So that, that's worth something in that world. I suppose he didn't lie in this instance. Right. Uh, James, there was a fascinating piece in The Intercept by Ryan Grimm on the woke dysfunction and disarray in pretty important progressive organizations. How big a deal is this? Well, as you know, and people who listen to the show know, I have been down on what are known as progressive advocacy groups for a long time. Think of uh, women groups, you know, uh, abortion groups, and also advocacy groups, things like that. And I've said they were useless. I was actually giving them far too much credit. I, I think what, the, and the, the, by the way, the, the Intercept is the kind of Bible of the left wing of America, and Ryan Grimm is a very well-known figure. There, and the fact that they came out with this, and I get you to talk a little bit about some of the examples of how debilitating uh, the cultural identity left is to these organizations. I think it, 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 the most important thing is it, it's not me saying it, it's the intercept saying it. And you and I both know too many people that have been dealing with this for too long and have been afraid and intimidated to say anything, and I think this, I think this changes the climate. I think this is an important piece, and I think it has. And it's not just has impact for the Beltway; it has real impact for for our listeners and people who care about these issues because that they have these groups have just become so under attack from their own people that they spend as you, you can talk about this Guttmacher Institute, which is a high-end, very respected thing. All they do, the, the one that runs is spend 90% of the time dealing with personnel issues. I mean, this is devastating 
when you need groups like this on the front lines at a time like this. And all they're doing is dealing with a bunch of whiny-ass, over-educated, you know, first-time employees. Yeah, the gut, you know, I've been writing about abortion, I guess, for, I don't know, more than 30 years, and there is no more indispensable source than the gut marker, the gut marker institute. It has great data. It tracks everything. It's, it's, it's very straight. It'll tell you exactly what the facts are. It has a point of view, but that isn't affected in any of its studies. And for them to be, um, they do important work. Yeah. And if they are distracted by all of this internal strife, which has nothing to do with the work they do, they're not going to be nearly as effective. But another that just struck me, we've talked about this before, was the ACLU. And they have some of their, I think, younger members saying, hey, we shouldn't defend causes that we don't believe in. That's antithetical to everything the ACLU was created and has stood for. They're supposed to take on unpopular causes in the name of civil liberties. They defended the right of the Nazis uh, to march in Skokie, Illinois. I, I mean, what's the point of an ACLU? CLU, if you don't defend causes that are unpopular or that some of your people disagree with, James. I, I have no way, not that I argue with the point, I completely agree. The essence of free speech and protecting free speech is, is speech that you don't agree with. Right. I doesn't, right. you know, if the Jehovah Witnesses in West Virginia, if they say they can't do it, I'm not a Jehovah Witness, but I think they have a right to, to promote their, their own view of faith. I mean, that's, that's the nature of it. Or you're right, the Nazis marching in Skokie. Look, once you start determining, it, it, and a lot of this, you know, the left wing has never been really big on free speech. Uh, they, they, they would say, well, look, free, the oppressed has the right of free speech. The oppressor does not, okay? Then define oppressed and oppressor. Uh, it, it, it's all so ludicrously silly. And that the ACLU is, you know, which I, to me is like one of the great organizations ever. And that they're completely compromised, paralyzed, constipated, whatever you can think. I, I have no idea why anybody would give, give them any money right now. I really don't because I don't even know what they stand for. No, you're absolutely right. And uh, if you, you know, if you, if, if you limit speech, if, if one group, group limits speech, then someday there'll be another group that's going to come in and limit their speech. And what it really, I think, demonstrates is a terrible insecurity about the, the fiber, the strength of, of our system, uh, which I don't share. Uh, I mean, I don't think, I, I, I remember when I was in college, you know, some communists came by, somebody from the Soviet embassy uh, came to speak, and he was devastated uh, because there was a professor actually there who just asked him such probing questions. He, he was totally flummoxed. That's healthy. That's good. I don't care if he had been effective. Uh, I don't, I have confidence in, in the basic judgment of the American people, and, and I, I just agree with you. I think it's a very, very sad saga. But if, if I believe in free speech even if I don't have very much confidence in people to interpret because I, 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 I don't know what, what the alternative is. And is it still an I sure to... don't want a bunch of, you know, snot-nosed staffers at the ACLU telling me what is permissible speech and what is not permissible speech. I really don't want to hear from you. I'm not interested in your uninformed opinion. 
James, is it spilling over to the body politic? Well, is it spilling over to the body politic? You know, I I don't know if the average person looks at this and, you know, cares about the ACLU. Probably most people, you know, wouldn't like it. I mean, and they've they've come out for some things that I think are are kind of silly, but that's their nature. You know, they they were against it one time, but going through the magnometers at the airport, that that was an invasion of, that's a ridiculous. But if you're the ACLU, you expect them to take some ridiculous positions. And I think that was a ridiculous position, but that doesn't bother me near as much as them pulling back them. In fact, that they advance civil liberties beyond what I think is, is, is intelligent or, or, or advisable. It, it, this bothers me much more that they deciding to, to pull back on civil liberties. I'd rather them be too extreme and let the political process deal with that as opposed to agreeing with certain forms of censorship. Yeah, I agree with you. I have profoundly disagreed with the ACLU's position on money in politics, where they basically uh, equate, um, you know, uh, free speech with uh, uh, with campaign contributions. I think they're wrong, but I think it's an honest position. It's, it's an incorrect position, but it's an honest position. Right. And um, uh, that's what they're forfeiting. But uh, anyway, uh, three cheers for Ryan Grimm for... Uh, exposing all this, and let's hope that it's written about more now. Right. A really a really significant piece, and I, I would urge our, our listeners to, to actually take time and, re- and read it because it, it names names, it gives you examples, and if you're frustrated at how the women's rights groups are coming across and environmental groups or, or, or people like that, you can see for yourself where they're now spending 90% of their time dealing with personnel issues. I, I think they ought to just fire them all. But I guess you can't do that because it'd be sued left and right. Well, I agree. James, our guest today, California Congressman Ro Khanna, is a very unique politician. He co-chaired Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, and he represents one of America's two wealthiest districts in the high-tech Northern California area. He sees the promise, however, of common ground among disparate Democratic factions. First, welcome, Congressman. We are so pleased to have you. And you represent the heart, I think it's fair to say, of entrepreneurial capitalism, and yet you led the campaign, presidential campaign, for a socialist. Now, that confuses old hacks like us. Could you explain? Well, I appreciate it. Let's start out with the tough questions. I, I don't think there's anything inconsistent. You know, I call myself a progressive capitalist. Well, let me tell you what it means simply. It means America leads when we support entrepreneurship, innovation. We, get, we can produce the greatest wealth uh, in the world. We do. But I want to make sure that everyone has basic education, basic health care, because that's actually smart to make sure we beat China and we lead the world economy. And I want to make sure the workers actually get paid uh, the value that they're providing. I mean, if we can have $11 trillion of market cap in my district and be producing more wealth than ever before in the history of humanity, it seems to me we can make sure everyone has health care, education and workers get decent uh, wages. Well, yeah, I, I, I think we all would agree on that. 
Uh, and But I think uh, that your House of Representatives is kind of a perfect microcosm of some of the some of the divides in the Democratic Party. And I think it's fair to say moderates like Alyssa Slotkin or Abigail Spanberger believe that initiatives like Medicare for All, which arguably cost Elizabeth Warren the nomination, or a Green New Deal are really almost political suicide. Do you convince them? Do you change? I mean, what? that's not an easy one. Well, first we look at where the common ground is. I mean, look, uh, Harris Wofford ran on single pair. I mean, Jim, Jim knows this because James knows this because he won the race in Pennsylvania and he won on that. And so I, I don't think anything is suicide or not suicide. In fact, the funny thing is Jimmy Carter in 76 was running and the, he, he, he had to adopt single payer uh, because the AFL CIO told him that's what he needed to do because of the Ted, you know, Ted Kennedy was pro, a proponent of it to win the nomination. But here's what I think we can agree on. I was actually just speaking to the CWA folks this morning, and I said this. I said, America, tell me the last time we've had a trade surplus in this country. And folks couldn't guess, 1975. I don't know when we decided that we shouldn't be producing things in America. You know, we didn't invent the automobile. We figured out how to mass produce it. We didn't invent the jet engine. The British said we figured out how to mass produce it. We've invented all this stuff in this country, and we've shifted off a lot of production. So the Democratic Party should be for bringing back the next generation of production, bringing economic prosperity to places left out. You shouldn't be talking about a brain drain in the United States. Uh, and that stuff that whether you're Alyssa Slotkin or uh, Pramila Jayapal, you can agree on. And I, I think we've got to get back to an economic message of here's our party. Trump, here's, Trump said he's going to bring back production. Here's what he did. He, you know, he, here was his strategy. He said, I'm going to cut taxes and I'm going to deregulate. Did that really bring back production? I mean, he said, I'm going to, you know, be anti, I'm going to stop the immigrants. Did that bring back production? No. Here's our real vision for how we're going to create these jobs. And I think we win that argument. Will you also talk about the importance of Democrats celebrating American exceptionalism, which you articulate, uh, you know, very well. But that doesn't resonate with some on the left. I mean, I take one example, Cori Bush, a congresswoman, says July 4th is only a white person's uh, celebration. It's kind of hard to celebrate American exceptionalism if you believe that, isn't it? Well, I don't say this as a message. I say this as a matter of fact. Look, I'm, we're all a product of our, our stories. My parents were immigrants from India. I was born in Philadelphia in 1976, our bicentenary. Grew up in County. At age of 40, the country elects me to represent Silicon Valley, which is one of the most economically prosperous places in the world. What other country would they allow a son of immigrants of a faith that's less than 1% to represent the, the epicenter of the economy of a country? That's a American story. So the, the point is we've made a tremendous amount uh, of progress in uh, in having people of all different backgrounds uh, have a chance. We have a lot of work to continue to do, but I look at the patriotism of people like Frederick Douglass, the patriotism of people like Martin Luther King, the patriotism of John Lewis, and I said they had it much harder. If, if, if Frederick Douglass could be enslaved for 20 years and still say America is on the ascent and America is going to be this great composite nation, uh, I, I, I think we ought to at least uh, think more uh, more uh, harder about what we owe this country and, and the promise of this country before giving in to defeatism. 
Well, let me try it one other way. I think it's indisputable that the Republican fringe right is far larger, far more radically dangerous than anything the Democratic left does. And you and Jamie Raskin have said, let's get away from this political correctness. But do you worry that there is too much wokeism in your party and interest groups that defund the police, the Latinx, so you can't use the word women in talking about abortion? I mean, you really can't get away from political correctness without standing up to that kind of stuff, can you? Well, yes, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I thought defund the police was a terrible uh, slogan. Uh, I said that when it came out. I. I, I don't understand it, really. I mean, how do you have a society without police? It's not just that it's... See, some of these things, it's not that it's just bad messaging. It's just that it's dumb. Like, I, uh, we say, oh, is it bad messaging? I, I think when I think of politics, I think of growing up in Bucks County uh, in a middle-class neighborhood and what the friends who I would play, you know, uh, uh, on street hockey or, or touch football or literally what they would think. And if I was out there saying, look, we shouldn't have cops, you know, that's not a... That doesn't make any sense to them. Uh, if I were to say, look, we need to make sure that uh, cops are properly uh, uh, trained and have, we have safeguards so that they're not shooting unarmed black people, that would make sense to them. So I think we there's just we have to talk about these things in, in common sense. And the uh, uh, same thing, if I say, look, we have to support uh, trans rights, that would make sense to them. Complete, you know, I mean, they may not agree, but they would say, yeah, this country, we should accept the rights of everyone. But that doesn't mean that I can't say that women should have the right to choose. I mean, so I, I think some of this is just talk about things the way you would talk to, to, to people you're growing up with. James. So, so Congressman, and I, 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 it's not supposed to use the word term woke anymore. It's not a full lot of words, so I'll refrain from using it because, but, but let's just call it the, the uh, cultural left. Do you discern that they have any realization of the damage that they've done to the party brand? I mean, if you pull one of these people aside and say, look, you, you, you see what's happening in the Rio Grande Valley? Or you see the, 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 the kind of friction that you, or look at Miami Dade, the friction that you had in San Francisco. Do they have any self-awareness that they're really damaging our brand and and really damaging American liberalism, which I am a, I'm not a moderate Democrat. People say I'm not a fucking moderate Democrat. I'm a liberal Democrat. Get that through your head, okay? I know that. But do you think that they have any sense of how much damage they're doing? Well, I don't think James that they're looking at it from what is the brand of the Democratic Party. And I'm just let me be blunt. I think they're looking at it from these are their constituents and they're representing them and. The question is this, look, uh, when my parents came to this country, we were 90%, uh, immigration was 90% European, uh, and today it's 15% European, and we're becoming a much more multiracial place. And so some of these folks are representing the actual views of uh, constituents, but it's for the leadership to say, okay, we've got all these voices, here's what the party believes. Uh, and that just if you're representing one constituency doesn't mean that you're speaking for the party. The person speaking for the party right now is Joe Biden and uh, Speaker Pelosi, Schumer. I mean, it's people in leadership. Well, oh, oh, OK, <laughs> I, 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 I happen to think that the, when they come up with this stuff, they, they're really hurting the ability. And people believe that you can bring change outside of politics. I, I'm sorry. It's my genuine belief that the only vehicle for the right kind of change we have in this country is the Democratic Party. End of story. And if you want to do 
the things that I think that I'm pretty sure you and I and a lot of other people want to do, expand healthcare, expand opportunity, you know, build a, 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 a more just future. You have no other vehicle but the Democratic Party. I hate to tell you that, but that's the reality. The idea that you can effectuate social change without political power is ludicrous. I've given my speech. You may respond. <laughs> Well, look, I agree with that. But as you would, you would also agree, James, that I was just down in Birmingham. But, you know, it's that the Democratic Party often needs to get pushed. Right. I mean, it wasn't uh, 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 John F. Kennedy or Linda Johnson who just said, OK, let's sign the Civil Rights Act and let's sign the Voting Rights Act and let's sign the Immigration Reform Act. It was people like Dr. King and John Lewis and the entire civil rights movement that got them to that point. So I, I agree with you that the vehicle, uh, certainly in this century, has been the Democratic Party. I'm very proud of the Democratic Party. I don't think we ought to be running down the Democratic Party. But I think we also ought to be celebrating uh, the activism that gets the Democratic Party to move often. Well, OK, I've turned it over to Al, but my favorite, one of my favorite stories in politics is Martin Luther King and Andy Young were flying back from Oslo after he was awarded the Nobel Prize. And they said, let's stop at the White House and talk to President Johnson. So, of course, Johnson keeps him waiting for eight hours because he's an asshole, but it's okay. They bring him in, and the, the King tells Johnson, we got to have voting rights. The Civil Rights Bill is not enough. Without voting rights, we can't push forward. And Johnson says, look, guys, I'm out of power. I've, I've expended everything I have on the Civil Rights Bill. I just don't have the power to do it. To get back on the plane, and King looks at Andy Young says, the president needs more power. Let's get it for him. Ergo, and Pettus Bridge, Selma, voting rights, marches, right? I see people on the left now complaining about Biden. That he, and, and the attitude among some people is, let's not get the president more power so he can accomplish it. Let's attack it and make him weaker, which is entirely the opposite of what King and Andy Young were trying to do. So I'm agreeing with what you say to a point, but the objective is is the more power that the leaders of the Democratic Party have, the better off the country is as a whole. I agree with that, actually. And look, I say this as someone who co-chaired Bernie Sanders' campaign. When I was asked, are you going to be for Joe Biden in 2024? I said, absolutely, 110%, because the alternative is no longer, are you going to have Joe Biden uh, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, the, the question is, are you going to have Joe Biden or Donald Trump? And there have been, right. look, I think as a Democratic Party, we believe in open ideas and debate, and you're never going to have the kind of unison that the Republicans have where the president says, uh, I say X and everyone marches along. And that's not how you have a political party. But what we should all agree on uh, is that we want to be increasing the strength and the, uh, the power of, of Democrats. And then we want to be supporting the president. And I still believe that the president's the best person uh, to take on Donald Trump. And I believe Donald Trump is still a big chance to get the, the nomination. And we shouldn't underestimate him. Right. Albert? Congress, let me ask you about a couple of specifics, because you, you've written, you wrote a very interesting, thoughtful op-ed in the New York Times the other day about what more can be done. I think it was in the New York Times uh, about what more can be done to combat inflation, government buying more oil and food when prices go and, and government should have purchased more baby formula. Do you think you, we really might end up, though, having to having to go to wage and price controls? No, I mean, look, that's what Nixon did. And that's why ever since then, there's been a, a reluctance to do anything. When I was watching this great speech with President Kennedy in 1962, 
And Kennedy gets out there and he just starts jawboning the steel industry. He says, what the hell are you doing? You're increasing prices. And Kennedy calls in the steel executives and he says, you better uh, start lowering the prices or we're not going to do business with some of the steel companies that aren't doing that. And he gets them to lower prices. So what I don't buy, I mean, this is, you know, and I've made this point in a friendly way to the White House, is we can't just say, okay, leave it to the Fed. People want to see action. You know, President Clinton, you say you got to get caught trying. And I think there are things we can do, whether that's uh, having the government buy uh, food and oil at the dips and then selling it back to the American public at a subsidized price. There are other ideas I, I had in there, but I think we have to every day we have to wake up saying here are the one, two, three things we're going to do to try to lower prices. And this is what our main focus is. You wouldn't rule out wage and price control as possible. I would lose. I don't think price controls work. Look, price and wage control. I, I would rule that out because that I think okay. aggravates the shortages and it hasn't worked. It will create long lines. But what I do, what I do think the government can do is one, uh, put more pressure on corporations to lower prices, like John F. Kennedy did. And what the government can do is actually engage in. Uh, in, in buying some of these products and selling them back. This, that's what the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is. The president has done it with a million barrels. And, uh, you know, that's about 5% of our use. He could, you could do it with more and you put downward pressure. The other thing we could do is put an export ban temporarily on the oil. Now, people say, ah, oh, you don't get the oil. We, we don't have the refinery capacity anymore to do the light oil, which is what we get out of the U.S. And we have all our refineries doing the uh, heavy crude oil. Well, you could have an exchange for the light oil and crude oil, but you could create a market where we have more supply here. We're the only country which has more oil supply, and we don't have to be a price taker from the oil market, and yet we are. So there are things the government can do, in my view, and should do to try to lower prices. Let me turn to a couple uh, uh, other, I think, interesting issues. You are a bona fide progressive, and I also am sure you would agree we don't have unlimited resources and we have to have priorities. But I think you have proposed to eliminate most college debt. Now, studies show, and I'll cite one, that primarily benefits wealthier graduates. Brookings says that the top quintile uh, who would benefit would get 2653 bucks, but the lowest, the poorest, would only get 569 Is that really a good progressive idea? So let's look at the total student debt is about $1.6 trillion. The plan that Senator Schumer, Elizabeth Warren, I'm on, would forgive about 600 billion of it, not the whole 1.6 trillion. I don't think, right. you know, I took out law school loans to go to an Ivy League institution. I paid them back. I don't think people like my me should have their loans forgiven. But when you're looking at people making under 150 grand uh, and you're talking about forgiving loans up to 50,000, uh, that Roosevelt study said that it helps actually the bottom 40% of wealth, uh, Amer Americans in the bottom 40% of wealth in this country. But you don't have to look at the studies, just common sense. I was with uh, Layuna, laborers in my district, and there were a scholarship for kids who wanted to go, uh, to, go to college. And, uh, and they, I asked them, how many people here think you should have forty or $50,000 of debt to go to, to, to go to college? And not one hand went up. It's crazy. No other country makes us do that. We had free college in this country basically from 1860 to 1960. That was Lincoln's Moral Land Grant Act. And then you had the Reagan movement come in, state budgets were cut, and that's why college tuition has escalated. 
That's not the American tradition. All I'm saying is, let's give everyone a shot. The other thing I want to say, and I believe this very strongly, since when have we come out and made it such that getting a college education is elitism? I get the statistics. I get that 60% of people don't go to uh, college, 40% do, and I'm all for having more investment in vocational education, the trades, and other parts of uh, making sure that we have unionization and higher wages. But you know what? When, when, when we had President Clinton, when we had President Obama, we had an aspirational society, and it would have been ludicrous for them to say, we don't want people to get as much education as, as they want. P people who are working class, they have dreams too for their kids. This is an aspirational society, and I'm sick of Democrats saying that somehow going and getting more education is elitism. What is elitism and condescending is telling the working family that they shouldn't have the same dreams that anyone else does. Well, well, let me one final question before I turn it back to James. What would you do on taxes? Uh, what, 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 what kind of, what kind of top tax rate should we have for individuals, corporations, capital gains? I would have a wealth tax. I, I, you know, we've gone from having billionaires in my district to hundred billionaires. I, I, I don't get it. I don't understand how the guy from Silicon Valley who has more billionaires than anywhere is saying uh, tax them, and they keep sending me back in terms of the district. So. You know, I, I, I don't think it's a hard vote for folks to say, yeah, let's have a, a wealth tax on, on, on billionaires. You know, we America used to lead in relative income equality between the post-World War era and 1980. And then Reagan came and said, let's have all these tax cuts, massive tax cuts for the wealthy. That's that's what changed. And so have the have the, the, the tax cuts and then I take the tax, uh, the wealthy back up to 39 percent like the president has proposed. And I'd have a minimum corporate tax like the president has proposed, and that would raise a fair amount of revenue. Capital gains? Yeah, capital gains uh, I, for people making over a million bucks, which is what the president's proposal is, I, I'd have it at the tax of ordinary income. Okay, James? So an issue that the Democrats seem to be running away with, and I'm pretty sure you and I in 100% agreement on this, and that's the issue of immigration. If, if you want to deal with inflation or you want to deal with, with, with wages, there's a, there's a really a simple, effective way to do it. It's allow more immigrants in this country. You deal, with, you deal with wages, you deal with Social Security, you deal with entitlement programs. And you tell me that a, a woman in, in a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old walks 600 miles from Guatemala to, to the Mexican-U.S. border, that's a motivated human being. We ought to be letting that woman and these children in this country so fast your head would swim. And people, I, I mean, I don't think there is a roofer on the northern Gulf of Mexico that was born in the United States. Somebody could prove me wrong, but I, if I'm wrong, I'm not going to be very wrong. And I just think that we ought to run on the real value of immigration. And by the way, most of the people that hate immigrants, immigrants don't go there anyway. <laughs> I mean, they want to go to Los Angeles or Houston or, you know, Miami or New York or Chicago or, or your district or the Bay Area. But but I, I think we're way too timid on this issue. Well, I appreciate that, James. I obviously agree with you. I Look, I think immigrants, and not just the kind of tech immigrants or engineering immigrants, immigrants right. coming who are right. uh, doing all types of jobs. They're coming, uh, one, with a patriotism. I'm I'm glad that millions of people want to come to the United States and don't want to go to China and don't want yeah. to go to Russia. That's what makes uh, yeah. it an exceptional country. And they're coming here with a 
a, a work ethic. They're coming here uh, wanting their kids to succeed. I mean, I say that as a son of immigrants. Now, obviously, we have to have borders and we have to protect our borders. And it's crazy to say, let's just open up the borders. But you can absolutely you, you can you can say, yes, we have to have borders. Yes, we have to, to have a process. But we need to make the case that immigrants are creating jobs in this country and they're strengthening the country and they're ne- and they're helping us compete with China. Uh, and I. I appreciate that. I, I that, that that you have that view, and I, I think we ought to be stronger on it. I, I, I just don't have that view. I think it's a political winner for us. So I, I talked to the hotel owners or something on these kind of speeches, and I said, if I was a Marriott, I'd set up a hiring table right down the border. You come on in. We'll, we'll take that. Don't worry. This person's going to be a good citizen. And somebody told me, and this is, I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm going to repeat it, that on average, an immigrant can clean 19 hotel rooms in a shift and a non-immigrant can do like 14. <laughs> now, I'm just saying something I heard. Yeah. You know, off the thing, but I, I do think that uh, 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 I agree with you. You have to have a border. You know, have a have any kind of wall you want. Just have a damn big gate. All right, but that immigration is one of these things that can address a lot of the problems that we have in this country and make this country a lot better. I appreciate that. I agree with that. I'll, I'll tell you this. I think here's why it's become demonized because because Trump. Here's what he said. I mean, I was in Galesburg, Illinois. And I was there speaking at the small private uh, college at, at, at Monmouth Liberal Arts College. And they, Sherry Bustos, who represents that area, said, hey, Ro, sit down. Right, a good friend of mine. You know Sherry? Yeah. Yeah, very, very well. And she said, go, go sit down with some of these Maytag workers. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll have pizza with the Maytag workers. 20 Maytag folks at Maytag. The plant shut down in 2003. 20 of them show up. And they say, look, the, 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 we used to make refrigerators. It was a sense of uh, community. We celebrated Christmas together. We knew everyone. If someone was sick in the family, we knew them. It wasn't just when the 5,000 jobs went offshore that the jobs went offshore. Uh, it was that uh, the community was destroyed. And they say, look, President Obama spoke about this in 2004 beautifully in his famous keynote speech. But presidents have come and gone. Congresses have come and gone. Our kids are still leaving the town. There's no economic prosperity. There are no new jobs. Now, Donald Trump came in and he said, Blame China, blame the immigrants. That's why your uh, that's why your life is messed up. And if I were in that community, I'd be pretty upset too. And he said, "Look, you built America. Now look, Rose family just got here. All the, look at all the money that's being made in Silicon Valley. What happened to you?" I think the Democratic Party's first, second, and third focus should be to think of places like Galesburg and also black, Latino, other factory towns and say, we're going to revitalize these places. We're going to bring production back, good jobs back, so you don't have to leave your hometown. And we get so lost in, you know, build back better. They think, well, what's that going to do for Galesburg, uh, Illinois? And that, that to me is, if we we got to focus there first, and then I think we'll build the support for immigration. Yeah, I, and, you know, I'll offshoring is a different issue than immigration too. I mean, sometimes they get conflated, but if we get all of the talented immigrants, <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things that bothers me is that in, in particularly in Central America, all the talented people are really trying to get out. And, you know, again, I'm, I talk about the people that walk 600 miles with their children to get in this country. They're leaving. And I don't know if we have a very good idea. You know, maybe it's in our interest to try to build a better participate with some countries to build a better life, but that's a difficult thing. But I do think that the party on a whole 
should be much should actually use immigration as an issue that can uh, work for us. Jez, what do you uh, think of this? I mean, I'm trying to say. I hope this doesn't get me in too much trouble, but I, I obviously believe right. in immigration. <laughs> no, but, but I said, I, I say this. I said we've got to talk about the rights, obviously, of immigrants, but we've also got to talk about the responsibilities. Because when I was growing up, my parents were immigrants, and they said to me, "Ro, you, 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 you've won the jackpot. You and your brother. You're born in America. Your cousins." don't have these opportunities. Go work hard. Go learn about the country. Go make something of yourself. My parents talked a lot more about the responsibilities I had than just my rights. And I think the the part of the irrational fear that people have is they think, okay, all these immigrants are going to come in, and are they going to believe in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and American culture? Immigrants tend to be the most patriotic of, of, of Americans. But I think if we start talking about it, yeah, you know, you come here and you there is a responsibility to understand the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, to, 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 to have uh, that obligation to, to the American uh, nation, then then maybe we start to reduce this irrational fear. Right. So in another thing, just the Hispanic immigrants to this country contribute to the military what punch way above that. That's way, exactly way, way above that you expect. So I want to ask you a, a policy question because you're on the Armed Forces Committee. And as you know, General Barger, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, has a plan to reorient the entire mission of the Marine Corps, which is to say the least run into some really tough resistance. Based on your service in the Armed Forces Committee and what you know about this issue, do you think the general is directing the Marine Corps in a, in, in a better direction? Do you have uh, some real concerns about this? Well, I don't wanna, I, I, we're, we're actively considering this now. We have the NDAA uh, coming up uh, uh, just next week. Uh, I will say this. I mean, look, I think to the extent that he's reorganizing it because he, he recognizes uh, the threats of China and Asia and wants to uh, anticipate that those are uh, constructive uh, suggestions. Um, but we have to look at it. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't think he's poorly intentioned, but I think it's still something that we're, we're looking and, and debating through. Uh, and I'm li- willing to give it an open uh, open hearing. Well, thank you, sir. Albert. Congressman, just one final point, a, a story, rather, you talk about immigrants. You know, Trump was not the first immigrant basher. There have been a lot before him. And about 50 years ago, 60 years ago in Texas, there was Ma Ferguson was the governor. She succeeded her husband, Pa, who died. And Ma came out for English only in the Texas schools for all immigrants with the un- unassailable logic that if English was good enough for Jesus Christ, it's good enough for Texas school kids. So <laughs> Donald, Donald Trump wasn't the first. Listen, you are one of the most interesting, thoughtful people in American politics, and it really has been our pleasure to have you on. Absolutely. Thank you so much, and I hope you'll come well, back sometime. I, I think both of Absolutely. you are, and I, uh, I have great, uh, great admiration for, for, for both of you. And, of course, uh, James, growing up, I'll just say this, you know, I— I, I grew up admiring uh, uh, President Clinton, and still still do, and 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 I read a lot of his books, uh, and Al, I followed your career and all your commentary for for many years. And so, uh, if I could close with just this thought, I I think what President Clinton was trying to do, what he was saying is, I got we got to get this country globalization working for every part of this country. And what we've seen is, look, lots of part. I mean, he made a lot of strides. He made a lot of efforts in the nineties. I actually think it's now easier to do because we're producing so much wealth and a lot of these jobs now of new technology can come back. 
And I think we can finish the, the project by actually going into places, rural America, other parts of the country that were left out of the prosperity and creating those economic opportunities. But the one thing I think James is actually right, absolutely right about, and I, I don't know if he still believes it, is it's the economy. And I wish we would just talk about uh, economic prosperity and economic empowerment for a lot of folks is, is, is leading with that. And I think the party could come together on a lot of those issues. Absolutely. Oh, I, I have no <laughs> doubt that Ro Khanna will be a major figure in that conversation. So, again, uh, I know you got to get back to your day job, but thank you very, very thank much. Thank you. We so really, really enjoyed hey, this. What percent of the patents come out of your congressional well, we district? Say the it's got to be really high. Has, my city has the highest uh, patent. Right. But right. to your point, James, it's, a, right. you know, my, it's not a coincidence that my district is as, as diverse as it is, as absent me immigrants as as it has and, and has that kind of innovation. I mean, the alternative is do you want the patents being in China or do you want the coming here and being American patents? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. Well, thank you very thank you. much. Take care. Okay, now from our listener questions. Again, they're all so good. Those we don't get to, we'll try to get to next week. James, you're going to like this first one. It's from Will in South Carolina. Will, next time, tell us where in South Carolina. <clears throat> James, you work with his dad under Clinton. His dad was Billy Webster, and he loves our show. His oh, question wow. is, he has smart friends who vote Republican because their parents vote Republican. What specific accessible issues would you point to in order to help them see a few of the problems with this version of the Republican Party? Well, one of the things I'll point out to him is that the leader of your party is a career criminal, which, you know, should have some uh, depressive effect on the party brand. And also your party has any of uh, huge contention of its leaders, and I'm talking about elected people, uh, that are out of their mind batshit crazy. And you you can point, you know, to a lot of different instances, a lot of people who won last night. And it's also, if you, your, friend, your friends are smart and intelligent and educated people, do, do they want to be aligned with a, with a party that believes in creationism and that the fact that the big lie that the election was stolen. I mean, when you, you accept the political party, you're accepting a, a lot of things. There's going to be a lot of things that you don't agree with. But criminality and stupidity are things that you don't have to agree with. They're actually a good reason not to vote for a, a major political party. And criminality and stupidity is not the same thing of silliness and naivete, which I, 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 you can certainly accuse some Democrats of. But they're not comparable comparable values. Well, let me tell you what I would tell those friends. Uh, James used to tease me that I was always looking for the good, good Republican. Uh, but I, I, I grew up in this business of journalism in Washington covering a lot of good Republicans. Howard Baker, Barbara Conable, uh, Bob Dole, uh, Richard Lugar, John McCain. Those were some of the Republicans in your parents' Republican Party. And ask their kids now to try to find, try to identify. Maybe they can mention Mitt Romney, maybe Liz Cheney, but that's a very, very short list. And ask them how many Bakers, Doles, or McCains there are in the party today, because the answer is there are precious few. Yeah, play a game with them. All right, 
you name one Republican you can admire, and I'll name five that are batshit crazy criminals, and you'll win this game every time. You're not going to run out of names. Don't worry about it. Right. Terry in Palmetto, Florida, uh, talks about the LBJ TV spot with the little girl with the daisies and the countdown clock and the exploding nuclear bomb that absolutely buried Barry Goldwater. Uh, by the way, Terry, that ad never ran. What they did, they put they shrewdly put it out. It got picked up all over the place, and it did have uh, a, a very negative effect. It was a brilliant ad. But she asked, why can't Democrats put out similar ads of school children in danger from assault weapons or seniors facing poverty if Social Security uh, and Medicare aren't, aren't uh, eliminated? Uh, they can, and they will do some of that. One of the problems, you know, you hear the critiques of the Democratic Party always, why don't they focus on the economy? That's what people really care about. Well, yeah, they should, but they also should focus on health care, and they also should focus, <clears throat> I think, in the current environment on guns and maybe roving overturned, and they just have to know you can walk and chew gum at the same time. And some of those ads ought to be very negative because I tell you this, there will be a lot of a lot of sleazy stuff coming from the other side. They already had to take down a bunch of ads in North Carolina. Yeah, I, yes. And it, one of the areas that we should assume, we talked a little bit about this with the congressman, is there's nobody that I know that's ever been in a focus group that doesn't think that these all companies are gaming these prices. And the president is starting to talk about that. I congratulate him. I think he's making a good move. I don't think we're exploiting this issue near enough. Not near enough. And yes, there is some, you know, gas prices are higher everywhere. They're higher here than they should be. And the bonuses and stock buybacks that these executives are getting are just breathtaking. You can read the Wall Street Journal, anybody to see that. Now, I think this is an issue that we can use with a motion front and center. On the, the Daisy LBJ ad, for some reason, I thought it aired once, and but your recollection, it didn't air at well, all. Well, I mean, you, you may be right. A, it may have had, yeah. yeah. Right. It wasn't a big it, national buy, but it had it, a big national buy. It, it was effect. like the Will Chamberlain scoring 100 in Hershey. There was 6,000 people there, but there was 6 million if you listened to it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a vague recollection that Tony Schwartz did that ad, but I'm not sure that's right. Uh, that guy was never he he never left his block in New York. Yeah, if you yeah. wanted to do anything, you had to go see him. He he, he really had a I don't know there's a a word for it a, a phobia to leave his house. <laughs> but he's a very Some, creative guy to say the least. Sometime we want we may want to go back and get four or five really really great ads from the past and just show them. Uh, right. But, um, our next question is from Jeff in St. Pete, Florida, St. Pete, Florida, Beach. He said he used to give significant amounts of money to the Democrats, but no longer. The only get my vote when it comes to passing bills. I don't see a Democratic majority overturning or using bills to overturn the Trump legacy, but instead relying on massive spending bills. Fixing Trump's damage should be our key priority, and I'm not going to give money to it till it is. How do you answer Jeff, James? Well, he's not, I mean, I, I don't quite, help me a little bit of where he's coming from, because I, I didn't quite understand the question. Well, I think that's because there's a problem with the question. He's basically saying the Democrats aren't really, aren't really overturning everything Trump did. That's why I gave money. That's why I voted for him. I ain't giving them any more money until they do that. But I don't, you know, again, I think that they're trying to undo a lot of what Trump did, but without some specificity of something that Trump did that they're not trying to undo, 
I, I, but in all due respect, I, I can't answer the question. Well, I Jeff, mean, let me let me give a try for it, James, and I'll give a right, good example. Go ahead. You know, they want to undo Trump's tax cut, which did great harm uh, to the country. It really did. It didn't do it provide anywhere near the benefits that they say it would. As you said, you know, a lot of these um, uh, companies and wealthy people use it for things like stock uh, buybacks. But I'll tell you, Jeff, you're in St. Beach, Florida. If they want to undo that tax cut, uh, there's a much better chance that Val Demings will do that than Marco Rubio will do that. So you can withhold your money if you'd like, but I will guarantee your counterpart on the right ain't going to withhold their money. So it seems to me what you're suggesting, you're talking about your dream of having 60 senators. You don't. You have 50. Your dream of having 250 House members who are Democrats. You don't. You have 222. So uh, I think you're, uh, I, I think it's self-defeating what you're. I, I, I kind of do, and what I said earlier in the interview, I mean it. The only vehicle for change that we have in this country is the Democratic Party. That's it. Nothing else. Period. It, 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 it may be convoluted. Uh, it, 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 you may think, as I do, that there are certain things about it that are enormously frustrating. Uh, there are even elements of the Democratic Party that I disagree with on things. But I understand that there could be no change without political power. And the only sensible political power that exists in the United States is the Democratic Party. There is no other. Yep. You're stuck with it. And I, I hate to say it, I, but I kind of understand where you're coming from, but that's just the facts of life. James Clay in Los Angeles asked, or notes, the Republicans say they can't do anything about their crazy members, but they had no problem uh, collapsing Madison Cawthorn. Now, the reason, Clay, they did, as you note, is his story about drug orgies with fellow Republicans really shook them. They weren't upset about all the incendiary, ugly, vicious, racist things he had said before. It's, wait a minute, when you're talking about our people going to orgies, we got to get rid of you. Uh, and I think that uh, as, I think that poor, sad young man needs help. Uh, he, he, he deserved his fate, losing a primary. But there are a lot of other Republicans in that House who need help, and they're not going to do anything about them unless they turn on their fellow Republicans. Yeah, that that guy obviously is is racked with mental issues, and you know I'm not going to sit here and bore you with the names of people in that caucus that are legitimately out of their minds. We don't have that much time, James. We don't have that much time. But but again, the the, the point is well taken. But the Madison Cawthon thing it was just a a troubled young guy that they felt like he had to get rid of. Of course, Paul Gosser, or Lauren Bobbitt, or Barger Taylor Green, or Matt Goetz. You're going to roll. Yeah, all, it, it, he, he, he's not the worst of them, I can promise you. Well, let me tell you, Matt Goetz may be as despicable as any of them. Last week, he said that Jamie Raskin really wasn't fit to serve on this committee because he is he is in a, a not a proper mental condition because of his son's suicide. That is as 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 vicious and, and uh, uh, I, I just, it makes me sick that a, a human being would say that about someone else and not to mention somebody as admirable as Jamie Raskin. He is a pervert right. and he he's really, pervert. he's just a bad human being. Uh, James, the next question is from Michael in College Station, Texas. Oh, the hey, the, ho the home of Nick Saban's uh, least favorite football team. Uh, why are the media and Democrats working so hard to turn Biden into a lame duck? Good question, Michael. 
<laughs> I, I, you know, we've talked about this a lot on this show, but it bears repeating. It, it, the Biden 42 and the Trump 42 approval are, are composed much differently. Trump was at 42 percent approval. He had 95 percent of Republicans with him. Biden's at 42. He has 75 percent of the Democrats. The Democrats are 40 percent of the country. It's a, a simple 20 percent increase in your favorability would, would yield you a net eight on your job approval. So instead of being 42, you're at 50. And it, it, it seems that the Democrats, the Democrats' strategy was to undermine Biden as much as you could, and that would produce a better result for you, which is just a stupid fucking strategy from the start. It really stupid. And the strategy has worked to the extent that they've undermined the president, but as opposed to giving power to implement things that we all as Democrats would like to see him implement, they have in effect weakened him to the point that he's unable to do many of the things we want. And you and I just you know, you knew the Republicans could be stupid and be against him. I didn't anticipate that the Democrats would be so effective in attacking President Biden. James, our final two questions are two good ones from, from uh, Windy City residents, Chicago. Eve asks, who is running the country, Congress and the White House or big corporations and lobbyists who finance their campaigns? She suspects the latter. Eve, you're on to something. Money and politics is just, it's gotten worse and worse. Uh, Jesse Unruh, the great speaker of the California Assembly some 50 years ago, said money is the mother's milk of politics. Man, Jess, uh, it, it, you, even you'd be shocked at what this is. Uh, there are people who get elected to the House and Senate, and the first thing they do is hold a Washington fundraising event. And these people aren't giving money because they're philanthropists, because they're giving, because they really care about good government. And in campaigns, you go and, and there are candidates, unless they're very wealthy, who spend 25, 30, 35 hours a week just calling donors. It's a, it's, a, it's a really bad system and creates worse government, but it ain't going to change, I'm afraid. You know, the, the, the person who has grown in stature since he died, as much as anybody, is George Carlin. And I urge everybody listening to this show is just Google George Carlin on politicians or George Carlin on who really runs this country. And it, it's it's funny, it's insightful, and unfortunately, there in most of the things that George Carlin did in his life, there was a real element of underlying truth to it. And I would defer to the great man, but he is very, very articulate and persuasive and, you know, unbelievably biting and original on this topic. Finally, Douglas in Chicago wonders, if you think Liz Cheney loses her August primary, will she then run as an independent? I guess Douglas is talking about this year, which I don't think is possible, uh, but she may not even be motivated to win, but it would be happy to split the right of center vote enough to let a Democrat sneak in. I, D Douglas, let me just amend your question. I think you're talking more about 2024, but maybe you're talking about 2022. But either way, James, address it. I, I, but I don't, I don't know if the vehicle is open for her to run as an independent. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in, and, the, and in this year. Yeah. I, I, and there are some, like Sweetwater County, it used to be much more, but there actually are some Democrats in, in Wyoming. 
And they certainly could have tipped the scales in Georgia somewhat to get Raffensperger over 50. I don't know. Uh, but it, it, it's a challenging environment she faces. But to her, unbelievable credit, she doesn't give a shit. She just plows ahead on what she thinks is right. And I think to, you know, the uh, Profiles and Courage Award were right on the spot. And you're very involved with that and went we're right on the spot. Forgiving her because when something like this, we're under threat, you actually need people you disagree with on your side. And she is decidedly no Democrat at all, but at least she's a, she's not a big D Democrat, but she's at least a small D Democrat. Which how about, is 20, how about 2024, James? If Trump runs, Liz Cheney will run against him and chase him all over the country. It, that person is got is never ever gonna let up on Donald Trump, and she will. I, I predict if Trump announces he runs for president, she runs for president, and she shatters him all over the country. She is not the kind of person that goes into something and then leaves it alone. She is gonna stay after him till the day he dies. I promise you. As a Republican or as an independent. Whatever she thinks gives her a better opportunity to damage Donald Trump. My guess is is a Republican, but I don't know that. Her decision will be based on one thing and one thing only. What can I do to hurt this demagogic career criminal, you know, authoritarian from ever holding public office or public trust again? That is what's going to be what is going to, to guide her. Whether it's as an independent or a Republican, she'll determine that. But she has one goal. Okay, James, now for the outrage of the week. You know, the alternative golf tour sponsored by the thuggish Saudi Arabian Prince Mohammed bin Salman is trying to buy some respectability. You know, pushed by Greg Norman, a few golfers, principally Phil Mickelson, have signed up for big money that the Saudis are dishing out as an alternative for the PGA, which I really am not here to defend. But the motivation here is to make us overlook or forget that MBS, American Intelligence, found masterminded the brutal murder and dismemberment of Washington Post journalist and Saudi critic Jamal Khashoggi. When Mickelson says he's doing this to grow the game, as one of my favorite sports writers of all times, Christine Brennan, says, that's a lie. This is blood money. Now, a hopeful sign that it won't succeed is that the Saudi's top American consultant is Ari Fleischer, the former Republican press flag. Now, earlier, Ari was a consultant to Dan Snyder and the Washington football team as they tried to keep its racist nickname, the Redskins. He failed. Then he was a consultant to the college football playoffs and helped botch that up too. So based on the track record, James, Fleischer may be just what this bad proposition needs to fail. And I don't know, did you know he was such a great sports expert? I, I did notice he, he's, he, he's uh, done very well advising sports entities. Uh, it, and everything you say is true, but... Biden is like, it, it, you just run into the reality. Biden is like dealing with the Saudis trying to give him stuff to up all production. I, I mean, they're so cynical and they're so right. It, it, America's for sale. All right, let, let's, let's just admit that up front. At every level, this country is for sale. 
And it's particularly for sale to lobbyists, to interest groups, to foreign powers. And, you know, Putin just made a massive bet that the resolve of the United States and the West will not outlast his resolve. And I'm scared to say this, but he might win it. Anytime that you throw money at the United States or even the West in general, you're bound to have a favorable outcome. That's the sad truth of it. That's just the sad truth. And and people are going to forget that you took a hacksaw and, you know, and everybody's saying, we'll never forget this, we'll never forget this. Of course, we forgot it. And it, it, it it's just the reality of the world. It's depressing, and I don't think it's going to change. Oh, I fear you're right. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsor, Chili Sleep, in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. You know, when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. So to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.